Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish. This is a special episode of Sly Flourish's Lazy GM Prep. I have been running a Numenera campaign for about the last seven or eight months. I think we just shy of 30 sessions of Numenera. And we have now finished our campaign. And I wanted to do a special show where I talk about what happened during the conclusion of our campaign, offer tips from a GM of Numenera that you can use in your D&D games, tips for GMs who are considering running Numenera, what are some things you might consider, some experiences that I I've had that I, I was able to get from myself and my players to help you potentially run a Numenera game and give you the feedback that I got from my players. I spent about 90 minutes sitting down with my players talking about how they felt about the Numenera game, how we com compared it and contrasted to 5e, comparing and contrasting to games like Blades in the Dark. So we had a really, really good conversation and I wanted to share the results of that conversation. Some of the things I learned were actually kind of heartbreaking. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you enjoy this show, if you enjoy the work I do and you want to help me out, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons also get all kinds of access to exclusive material like the City of Arches source book, the Uncovered Secrets, a whole book full of tips to help you run your D&D game, bunch of different exclusive adventures that you can pick up, access to a dedicated Discord channel, and access to the monthly Patreon Q&A. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. I wanted to start off today's show by offering some tips for D&D DMs. I expect a lot of the viewers that are watching my videos are Dungeon Masters who play D&D, 5th edition D&D. So I wanted to make sure that even though we're talking about Numenera, I can offer some valuable tips for you for running your D&D game that I have learned from running this big Numenera campaign. Probably the biggest one, and this came from the fact that I learned so much about how my players felt about Numenera and felt about the campaign we were running. I really wished I'd had a conversation like that in the middle of the campaign, or at least a few times during the campaign. So one thing I think we could all do better in all of our RPGs is stop the game for a minute and have a conversation for a half hour and say, hey, before we start the game or next time we're about to do a game, I just want to spend 30 minutes or so talking about how you feel about the campaign, what's going on, how you feel about your character, how do you feel things are going? And just have that out of game conversation with people to see what they're enjoying, what is not really working well. This is like Stars and Wishes. If you're familiar with Stars and Wishes, Stars and Wishes is a technique where you ask your players, what are some things you're really enjoying from the current game or what are some things you really hope to do? And it's a very positive way to interact with your players. In this case, I would give it more time. Instead of like right at the end of a session asking for Stars and Wishes, say that, hey, at the beginning of our next session, we're going to have a moment of Stars and Wishes. Talk about how we feel about it. Are you happy with your character? Are you happy with the story? Are you happy with the kind of game we're playing? And just get that feedback from people because I learned a lot about our Numenera game after it was done. And I really wished I had spent a little bit more time having conversations like that. I was pretty open with my players about talking about that kind of thing, but I don't think I gave nearly enough time to it. So that's something you could do with any of your RPGs right away. The other one, and this came from both my experiences with it, this is something that I've experienced with Numenera for a long time. It's also something that my players definitely recognize when we're playing it. The idea of adding single-use magic items to your game, whatever kind of game it is. This is any kind of item that you can drop on your players that has like one powerful effect on it. A lot of times an easy way to do it is tie a big spell to it. So you could give your third level characters access to an, um, an artifact that can cast Circle of Death once. And what does it mean for them to have this really powerful artifact? And my players really felt like a lot of the mechanics of Numenera was like kind of doing the same thing over and over again. 
But ciphers were a way to completely change everything. In, in Numenera, they call these single-use magic items ciphers. But you can add these single-use magic items to any of your games. And I've been throwing them in my D&D game now for years, and I really, really love it. It's really powerful. But my players really said, like, that very much changed the environment. And they saw how that could be a really powerful thing for, for a D&D game. One trick that people have talked about is not that players tend to hoard things like that. They get these single-use items, and they don't use them. And a big question is like, well, how do you get them to use those items? And I think one answer is if the DM, if you want, so a lot of times I just don't bother. I keep, I don't keep track. And if they use them, they use them. If they don't, they don't. That's up to them. But another way, maybe a better way is to keep track of them when you drop them out. Keep a separate list. Maybe if you're using a Notion notebook, you have a page of ciphers that are rewarded and who picked them up. And then you can look through that and remember them. And then you can suggest to the players when those ciphers might be good for a certain scene because they just might have forgotten that they have it. It's a little bit, you're not quite telling the player how to play. You're just reminding them that they have these things. And you're telling them that, hey, this particular situation, that crazy elemental bagpipe you picked up that cast wall of fire now might be a really good time to drop that wall of fire in play sometimes the players will remember it sometimes not but that idea of single-use magic items really powerful flexible idea that you can drop into any of your games one of the things that i really loved about numenera and i've loved it since i've ever read about it and started playing it and and i loved it in this is the idea that any challenge in the game can basically come down to a level between one and ten. One is very very easy ten is almost impossible and any range they're in now dnd also has a range like that they have dcs you know somewhere between 10 and 30 ish right 10 and 20 10 is easy 20 is hard anywhere in 10 to 20 is a pretty good but you could go as far as 25 or 30 for really big and impossible tasks getting getting an understanding getting comfortable with that range of DCs so that you can use it to improvise during your game. Really powerful idea. In Numenera, you have to do it that way. But in D&D, you can just really have a good understanding of like something between, you know, what's the difficulty between 10, which is very easy, and 30, which is almost impossible. Where does that DC stand up? And don't ask yourself like, well, what are the players going to be able to do about it? And instead, just say, how difficult is this thing for anybody? And then choose that difficulty and go with it. You don't always have to pick a DC that's like 10 above whatever the character's bonus is. Like that's pretty lame but instead you can you can pick this dc getting comfortable with that is good and then also understanding like what does that mean for armor classes what does that mean for damage what does that mean for other effects that could occur in game when you have this difficulty of somewhere between like 10 and 30 you want to ask yourself like okay well what is what what does that challenge level mean in damage terms and there's you know there's lots of tips i have tips in the lazy dm's workbook lazy dm's companion or like what does it mean if you think about a challenge rating a general challenge rating for a task and, and that challenge rating could be anything. Challenge rating is roughly equivalent to, to the, you know, average character level. Roughly, right? Roughly. If you think about like what that challenge level is like, well, how much damage would that challenge level do? What would the AC of that challenge level be? What are the DCs for saving throws and stuff like that? There's some math behind that. And if you understand that math, you can really do some, some good improvisation. One thing that we learned is that 5e, all of our complaints, all of the things, like I complain on my show all the time about different things in 5e. I've talked about the 1DD playtest a lot. Boy, 5e is a really, really solid system. And I, I know that there's been a lot of criticism from designers saying, why is everything always 5e? How come they're making like a 5e Doctor Who? Why are they making 5e? One reason is it's very popular and people know it, but two is it's a really solid system. And when you start to play other systems that feel pretty solid, but then kind of fall apart in different areas, you get an idea, yeah, 5e really holds its own pretty well. And that's something that we discussed during when I was talking to my players about it. And we were talking about how we felt about Numenera. I asked like, would you play it again? And they're like, yeah, but not right away. Like I'd, I'd want a break. But we never felt like that with 5e. We never felt like, oh, you know, do we want to play a different system instead of 5e? We never really got tired of 5e. We've played campaign after campaign after campaign, you know, going 1 to 12, 1 to 12, 1 to 13, 1 to 12, 1 to 8, and running many 5e campaigns back to back. And occasionally I'll drop another system in there. 
But now we're like, yeah, Numenera is great, but I think I'd want to break before I try it again. So it's interesting to, to note that like it really made our appreciation of 5e greater to play Numenera. The abstract distance system in Numenera is definitely something you can bring into 5e. I, I had one player who is very much a fixed distance kind of player. He, he likes to be able to see a map. He likes to know how what his range is. And getting used to what he referred to as sort of the spatial distances of 5e or the spatial distances of Numenera took him some work. He's like... I could have used more instruction in that. I could have used some better ideas of how that works. So that that's definitely something where you can spend a bit more time understanding how those abstract distances work. And if you use abstract distances in D&D, which I do, I love it, then it's really good and important to have the conversation with your player outside of the game about what that means. What's short and long range? How will you describe it? How do you make sure that it's clear to the players when when they are there? So that it's not just always like, well, you tell me what I can do. See, the other thing is like Numenera is a fantastic way to really break your brain out of the stereotypical kind of fantasy world. And I think it really can help push your imagination a lot. And one thing is I noticed by the time I was hitting about session 25 or 26, I was struggling to keep up with the vast scope and scale of the science fantasy of our game. And, you know, what, what's interesting about it is even though there was this vast scope and, and, and scale, that it's Numenera still played like D&D in the end, that it was still characters going on adventures, characters getting quests, characters meeting NPCs, characters exploring dungeons and stuff like that, which was both good or bad. But it means that there's a lot, a lot of the structure that we have in our D&D games and how those work, that's transportable to other systems too. And the other big tip that I'll offer, Numenera has some of the best art I've seen in any role-playing game, maybe the best art I've seen in any role-playing game. And one thing that you can do both running Numenera, but really running any of your RPGs, is lean on the art, show the art, get screenshots of it, get pictures of it, show it on your phone, send it to them in email, put it up in your Discord server. Let them see the art and let them build from the art. That was something that was really critical in Numenera because nobody could understand the, the abstract nature of a lot of the things that we were talking about in Numenera. And the art, when you show them the art, they go, oh, that's what it looks like. And that was, it really lent to the fantasy. So use that art. They, like Wizards of the Coast and, and Monty Cook Games paid a lot of money for that art. Use it, show it to the players. Show it as much as you can. It's worth getting a good color printer and printing out color pictures and putting those color printers, those color pictures in front of your players so they can see it. Get a big monitor, put it up in your, in your gaming room so that you can put, you can use your phone or you can use a device to throw pictures up on the monitor. Show off the art as often as possible. So those are my tips that I think can help D&D DMs get some value from the experiences that I had running Numenera. If you were considering running Numenera, these are some tips that I would offer as well. Again, this comes from my experience now having run a longer campaign, talking with my players who played in that campaign and from playing Numenera in, in the past. It's really important to explain how the mechanics work in Numenera and explaining the relationship of effort and edge and the different pools. I'm not gonna explain how Numenera works. If you wanna know how Numenera works, there's other videos for it. But there's all these different mechanics that exist inside Numenera. And it's one thing to understand the basic rules, but then it's also important to understand the relationship that when is it worth spending points on a defense roll? This was something that was really tricky for some of the players. And, they, and I had players who said like, we played for eight months and I still don't have a handle on the mechanics. I still don't really understand how it works. And, you know, it's because like underneath, like we say like, oh no, it's a very straightforward system. You're rolling D20, it's against its level, three times your level, all that stuff. But that relationship of like, how come it feels like even when I'm getting, even when I'm defending against hits, I'm still draining hit points like crazy. I'm still draining my resources like crazy. And nobody really died and nobody really dropped that often, but people really felt like they were stuck between a rock and two hard places when it came to expending their effort. And they understood that once you have an edge that's at a certain level, the amount of points you spend is really, really low. But they still felt like as the challenges were going up, they're still just you know, getting punished for it. 
my players and I all felt like we played this long campaign. And it was great, but the game started to drag closer to the end. I had a player. This is one of the heartbreaking things I heard from one of my players that I really wish I had heard earlier, which was she said she had spent weeks never succeeding on an attack roll weeks that it wasn't just like one session where she had some bad roles, but she said in some cases, the challenges that they were facing were so high. And the way that her character was, was, was built is that she was spending all of her po points, all of her resources, just staying alive. And she didn't really have any re other than just throwing a blast out to try to hit something once in a while that she really didn't have any offensive capability. And if she needed to burn a lot of points to get to the point where she could actually hit something, then she wouldn't be able to defend herself and she would die. She was burning so much fuel, so many of her, those pools, she could never expend any of it to actually do anything effective because she was using all of it for defense. That kind of relationship is, is, is something to talk to players about. When should they just take a hit? When should they try to defend against a hit? When should they use those points to do attacks? And some of that I take on myself that I was throwing these high levels, level five, six, sevens, eights. I threw a level 10 at them at the end. When you throw these really high level things on, they're just going to burn points like crazy just to live. But definitely recommend sticking to shorter campaigns. I think that Numenera gives you a lot of capability up front. And when you're in the low tiers, when you're like tier one, tier two, tier three, you can kind of run the same sort of adventures and it doesn't really change. When you get to tier four and five, that's when the drive to bring these bigger, powerful sort of challenges gets in front of people. And that means they're burning a lot more points. It means like when they don't have good defenses, they're going to get just destroyed. So it's really tricky. And I did find a, a shocking conclusion that I that I that I reached when I was playing this is it's not any mechanically less crunchy than fifth edition is. It's not simpler. It's not more streamlined as you get to higher tiers. We had combat that took just as long as any fifth edition combat. We're doing theater of the mind. We're doing a just description. And still, it takes a long time for people to choose what they're going to do to make those choices, to do those balances. It didn't get any shorter. It didn't it didn't. The pace of the game definitely got longer when they got to higher levels. So playing a shorter focus campaign that's on lower tiers, I think is really the sweet spot for Numenera, very similar to the sweet spot for 5th edition D&D. The math definitely gets wonky at, at high tiers. That it's really, I described this already, that that idea of like, when if, you, if you're good at defending against a challenge, you'll be okay. But if you're not, like some characters are really good with attacks and they could really just slam damage down on high level monsters. But other characters would never even be able to hit. And it was like, all they could do is sort of get assets. I mentioned leaning heavy on the art. You can do it in Numenera, definitely do it in Numenera, but you can do it really in any RPG. I would probably keep to that sweet spot for monsters of between level two and six. I definitely ran some big monsters, big boss monsters that were like level sevens, level eights, level nines, level tens. I don't think I ever ran a level nine, but I ran sevens, eights, and tens. And boy, the math gets really wonky. It gets really, really hard when you're running these really big monsters because they have to burn so much stuff to defend against them, so much stuff to hit them with an attack, so much, they take so much damage from them that they just get chewed up by these high-level monsters. So t sticking the baseline of the kind of monsters they should be facing are somewhere between like two and five, two and... And the other thing I had players give feedback on this, a lot of these tips are tips that my players said to me when I asked them, hey, what tips do you have for helping new people run Numenera? And one of them was that that you you know that because we don't understand what this world is really like because it's such a fantastic world, you're going to want to make sure to put lots of like physical prompts in your scenes and explain to players how they can use them as assets to lower things. So environmental assets, things and advantages that exist inside their situation that can help them lower the level of a monster for free so they don't have to burn a whole lot of points in order to hit stuff. Something I've only learned like right at the end of the game. So now I wanted to offer up for those of you who have been following my journey during this Numenera campaign. And thank you for that. It's been a great joy to be able to do my prep online and to talk about my game. And, and 
it really was the most fantastic role-playing game I've ever played. And I mean that in the definition of fantastic. It was high scale. It was high scope. It was universe, universe level changing stuff. It was world ending things going on. There was one scene where they had, they had three different world ending entities that they were negotiating with and figuring out which one is their friend, which one's their enemy, and which one are they kind of hoping to put off to the side. Really, really fun, big scale stuff. And I, I really, and all my players agreed with this. And when we talked about the story and the world, they loved it. They loved how rich it was. They loved how fantastic it was. They loved how the story changes involved. All of us really, really loved that idea. And it, and it really took place in the finale of the game. And it, and it was really, really enjoyable. And so the, the, at, the, at the end of the last session that I had described, the characters were getting ready for their final assault against the Temple of the Drowned City of Clay. There's this underwater city, the fourth emperor, this huge, super powerful entity from another dimension is coming into the world to destroy the world or to take over the world. And the characters were doing their final assault. And in this point, they had, they had opened up the, the data sphere. So all of their friends were able to sort of data cast in. So they had all of their NPCs that they dealt with, like dozens of NPCs or about a dozen different NPCs that are now on their side. And I explained to the players, all of these NPCs are assets to you. They can all go to war with you. You can leave some behind, but you can bring those who are going to help you there. And anytime you need to use one, you can use it as an asset. We'll describe how they get involved in the battle. But every time you do, there is a chance that NPC is going to get killed. And it was really kind of scary. People were like, I don't know. But they, they brought everybody. They said, they, all of these people want to help us with this battle. They can all come along with us. So they had this big final assault. It was mostly narrative. I mostly described how their armies, the glistening army, these super soldiers that can teleport in, how they broke in, how they smashed their way through the temple. And then they got to the final, they got to the final battle. They, they got into the throne room and the throne room was really like a two phase battle. My plan was like a two phase combat, which I hadn't really done in Numenera very much. And that was, there's a bunch of these other planar, these planar assassins, these planar guardians called Rorithics, which they had faced before level five, level five nasty assassin guys. And those are like the guardians to make sure nobody else broke through. They're sort of the fourth emperor's final line of defense were these Rorithics. And there were dozens of them, but the characters had dozens of NPCs helping them battle them off. So I definitely described like how the battle is not just the characters. The battle is huge and their friends are dealing with this too. And then there was these three handmaidens and the handmaidens were these huge constructs that were keeping the dimensional door open so that the fourth emperor could arrive. I didn't have great mechanics or a great sort of system about how to destroy the handmaidens to weaken the fourth emperor before it arrived. But I came with that up on the spot that if they destroyed two of the three handmaidens, it would basically lower the level of the fourth emperor when the fourth emperor arrived. So instead of being a level 10, he's only a level nine or his defenses would be level nine. He would have been injured, but his attack bonus would still be level 10. So then they, they destroyed two of the three handmaidens and then they faced the fourth emperor himself, the fourth emperor itself, this huge skull is massive, like otherworldly alien metal cybernetic skull comes through the portal. And as soon as it arrives, it just hits him with like this, this weird blast. And I, I rolled randomly to determine, is this might, intellect, or speed? And it basically was like, it, it is able to sort of reconstruct cells. So I was like, it's rebuilding your body. It's trying to turn and rebuild your bodies on the spot. So they all had to roll level nine defense checks, I think it was. Or they would take 10 damage as their characters are getting reconstituted by this, by this powerful entity. Just the character just the players negotiating how to defend against that was as long as a full round of combat so imagine if when your monster attacked 
you had the equivalent of a full round of combat just to determine who got hit and how and how much damage they took. It took a long time for people to adjudicate that. Because for some people, it's like, that's going to knock me right out. Like, I'm going to get hit by that and I'm down. So they're like, but I don't know how to spend points. I don't know what assets I can pull on. And maybe I'll pull on a friend. And they they were pulling in their friends. They were using abilities they had. They were using ciphers. They were doing all this stuff to defend against that one attack, which funny enough was the only attack the fourth emperor got. And then they laid into the fourth emperor. They tried to burn everything they had. They pulled in their assets. They, they did this stuff. And it still took a long time. And I'm checking my watch and I'm like, oh my God, like I, I want to run a one year later. I want to definitely have them beat the fourth emperor and then describe what happens one year after they live. So I'm like, we got to get moving, right? So I was getting impatient. I felt like I was losing control of the battle. I didn't really understand how things were working. A lot of stuff. So it was not my, not my best boss fight. And, and it took a long time to adjudicate this stuff. But in the end, they won. And they defeated the fourth emperor. The fourth emperor was destroyed. The portal was open. And then they had to make some hard choices. And like one of the hard choices was, do they inject the hex into the portal? The hex is the super sentient, super contagious digital slash physical virus. And the hex always had an agreement with the characters that if you get there and if the portal's open, I want you to send me into the world of the fourth emperor. And the characters was like, what's that world? What's that world is nicer than ours though. Are we, are we dooming an entire society for this? And in the end, Samji, who is a member of the glistening army and was the one infected with hex said, I put it into my spear and I throw in the spear and I jump in after it. And everyone's like, Really? And I'm like, I, th- I think we're going to go with that. Like, I'm like, if the player wants to do it, it's his final moment. He can do it. And he did it. And they were like, should we stop him? I'm like, I don't think so. And he went in and he brought the whole glistening army with him. All of his remaining siblings that were members of this glistening army. There's about 4,000 of them left at this point. He and his 4,000, his brothers that were still around and his, and the rest of the glistening army went into the dimension of the fourth emperor to battle the fourth emperor in its own world. Totally wild. Really, really fun. So in the end, they were, they did bring some NPCs up and say, you know, they put some NPCs at risk, but everybody survived. Their NPCs survived, which I was very happy with because it's like the risk of their death was definitely there. The players knew the risk. They were rolling the die to see if they died. They didn't die and it all worked out. So then we went into my favorite part of every campaign, the one year later. What happened one year after the end of the campaign? And in, in I'm summarizing what happened because I think some of us who have been following these prep episodes are very interested where they went. Baiko, decided Michael had always had trouble figuring out like what his place was going to be a couple of the characters were like when this is over I don't know what I'm going to do and Baiko walked off into the sunset he said I go I go explore other places I go leave and I this, I said you find the liminal shore you find this whole other world that sort of exists on the earth as you kind of sail across the sea and you don't know even how you got there but you got to a world where life has just exploded in 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 a beautiful and chaotic way and I took some screenshots from the book liminal shores which is a Numenera book and sent them and said these are some of the postcards you send back to your friends and it was really cool that i was like able to kind of show him what he discovered and for me it leads into this like i would love to run another numenera campaign maybe a short one that is about the liminal shores liminal shores is a new numenera book that's out it's a gorgeous gorgeous book i mean just look at that cover art the cover art is just fantastic and it's really like a magical world in a science fantasy setting. And it's got adventures, it's got ciphers, it's got all the kinds of stuff, but I just love the pictures of it. I love, it's just a a weird sort of fantastic, it's almost like the Feywild for Numenera. And I really liked this. I really like this idea of this totally mysterious land that nobody really gets to. They don't know how you got there. 
And when you get there, you just see stuff. So I, I grabbed screenshots from this, screenshots from this artwork and sent it in. And I would totally run a short campaign in the, in, in, in the Liminal Shores. I would totally do that again someday. I'm excited to do that already. I'm, as I'm talking about it, I'm excited to do it, do it again. So Biko went exploring and found the Liminal Shores. Cecilia, she, so Cecilia was an insect person. She was like a bee person. And then she found a cipher that was able to turn her skin into a crystalline structure that meant she could live longer. So her race was originally at 43 years old, would die. Every member of their race, when they hit 43, would die. And then that was actually engineered by the fourth emperor when when the fourth emperor created that race many 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 millions of years ago and she found a way to give this to all of her people so everybody became a they could no longer procreate they could no longer have new members of their society but all of the members they do have would be able to live forever and and she made that choice and it was this really big moment she said she really loved making this big choice it was really really fun for her and the repercussions of that what that means what that means for her people some of them are going to hate her forever some people are going to love her forever it's really different but her her one year later was that they had their first 46th birthday the first time that any member of her race lived that long and everybody was there like many members of their society kind of came there and they explained how they felt about it to her and stuff like that and she said every hundred years we'll get together and we'll we'll talk more about what this is like we'll get we'll get together and and and, and talk about what that means and it'd be really really fascinating idea definitely like a like a sandman you know hey let's meet in 100 years at the same tavern Really, really cool. Jad the Shade returned to Badrav and kind of went back to his former life. He was always like a scavenger and a scrounger looking for bits of Numenera to kind of use to make his life better, to help other people. And he figured out that even after saving the world, that was what he was best at. So he went back and I think he kind of became the new Terrence. Like Terrence was the main NPC that was sort of a, a an explorer and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, a jack who would find Numenera and use it to help people. And so Jad returned to Badrav and went back to his, his life helping people. It's really kind of neat. He had this huge super scope, save the world kind of adventure, and then went back to like running a hardware store. Really, really neat. Juniper started a, a star horse and scrapbooking therapy organization. Basically, people could come and they could ride horses, ride, ride crazy star horses, and they could work on scrapbooks and talk about their problems and their woes. Like sometimes my uncle just won't listen to me, or sometimes I have to stop a million year dimensional entity from destroying the planet. And sometimes my mom won't, 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 doesn't understand who I'm trying to be. So she started this as like therapy organization. It's really, really, really fun. Nakia made an apple orchard. This is, you know, talk about a play on words. And Nakia ended up making an apple orchard to commemorate Samji, who is an android. So you have a, Nakia, a character named Nakia who builds an orchard made of apples in order to commemorate an android fun fun play on words and he would regularly build like statues to samji out of the apple cores but then they would rot and fall apart and he would do it again the final big one was samji samji was inside the dimension of the fourth emperor and there he discovered the truth of the fourth emperor that the fourth emperor is only one of many hundreds of entities similar to them that it is a particular kind of of, of multiverse devouring creature and the world of the fourth emperor, the universe of the fourth emperor is the end result of the destroyed universes that they had devoured. Whatever remained, it was the rotting carcasses of all of these other universes. And Samji, where with his army was building up like, we're going to have to fight all these guys eventually. Like we fought one and beat one, but now we got all these other ones to save these other universes. But in the meanwhile, got the chance to go find like part of a destroyed universe that had like a nice garden, a nice, a nice bit of nature where he could go and just sort of relax and, and chill and that was that was where it ended with his with his army in this other world 
really really fun super vast in scale and scope and and a great a great ending to a really really fun campaign so i had another opportunity this is something i definitely wanted to do having spent this time which was sit down with my players and talk to them about how they felt about numenera and i got a whole bunch of notes from them and i kind of summarized the notes in these points i'm going to kind of move through these relatively quickly the sort of observations that they had about the game uh, by, by and large, they all love the world, they love the story, they really love the science fantasy of D&D, but they also kind of recognize that you can fall back to D&D's common tropes. You, they said, like, even though we're doing this, like, crazy world-ending stuff where you have satellites firing tungsten rods and blowing up entire facilities all over the planet, we're also doing a lot of dungeon delving. And they recognize that those models for D&D really worked, more so than games like Blades in the Dark, where the whole structure of the game runs differently. There was a fair bit of discussion about comparing, like, Blades in the Dark from Numenera. I can say that I found Numenera far easier easier to run than I found Blades in the Dark because of that structure. I'm so familiar with the structure of D&D and the fact that that structure fits well in the Numenera. It was way easier for me to run that than it was to run Blades in the Dark, which is a very different, the play style of Blades in the Dark is very different and it took me a while. I don't even think I ever really got there to understand exactly what my role was as a DM running or as a GM running Blades in the Dark. I had, I definitely had a player and, and other players agreed with this, that the continual negotiation of actions, that every time you make an action in Numenera, in Cypher system, it's a negotiation. You start with a DC then you use character abilities to lower the DC, you look for assets, you work with other players, and that constant thing, especially in combat, where you're doing it one right after the other, that it can get tedious, that that constant negotiation can get tedious. And what we compared it to, and, and, and definitely people kind of ag agreed with this, with this comparison, which I brought up, is that imagine that you are recalculating your attack score every time you are making an attack roll. That every time you're making an attack roll, you're essentially saying, okay, it's a plus one weapon, I have a plus three strength and my proficiency bonus is plus two and I'm a ranger. So that gives me, you know, a plus one to this thing that imagine every role you were doing that kind of math. It would be pretty tedious. I actually had a player, I had a, I had a player who was on the autism spectrum and for him, he would recalculate his score every time he rolled and we got used to it and we would just let him do it. It was just easier instead of like trying to help him out or try to get him to write down the number. It was just easier to let him do it. And, but we, we kind of talked about that. Like imagine if all of us were doing that all the time, that's what Numenera was like. That, that idea of that you're always negotiation, you're always negoti negotiating an action, whatever action you're taking, it's like a negotiation. And that for, for some that definitely got tedious. And I can see that, that like, that's why the more you had to do more of it when you were at higher levels and it could take a long time. We definitely have players where it took a long time just to do an action, just to figure out what the role was for an action. Fifth edition, it's like you roll, you add your bonus and you're done. So I can definitely see that being an issue. There were lots of great options for building characters. And one of the things that, that one of the players brought up is the fact that you have this like, you know, this blank, blank who blanks. And it's that final one, that sort of verb at the end that tells you, you ride the lightning or you can pass through walls or you, you know, that you're made of flesh and steel. It kind of talks about who you are and what you do in the world. And it's described in your descriptor. So you have that sentence. And that was something that they've advertised heavily with Cypher and they have it heavily with Numenera. But it really plays out where like you're a, you know, you're a blank, blank who blanks. And that really helped them build characters and understand what their character is like. They really liked the character creation, which again is why I think that Numenera is probably strongest during character creation and in early tiers. And then as a long campaign, maybe not as much. 
I already brought up the fact that the math started to break down at higher levels that, and again, one of my players, and it just, it, hurt, it hurts me to say it, it hurts me to say it, that she missed for weeks. She went weeks without actually rolling an attack. And for some, they said they never got their hands around the mechanics. They never, they never understood exactly how this whole thing worked, that the idea of burning points and effort and edge, it became too much. And particularly at higher levels, they said, and it occurs to me that's right, that like there's certain situations where you're fighting like an eighth level creature where you're like, I'm either burning points to hit it, burning points to defend against it, or losing points while I'm hit. But no matter what happens, I'm just shedding points. And it's imagine like, imagine if everything in D&D, imagine if or, in order to make an attack, you had to eat hit points to get a plus bonus on your attack. And if you wanted an AC higher than 10, you would have to burn hit points in order to get your AC up above 10. And if you want to do damage, you would have to add to damage, right? Imagine if you, like you had a big hit point pool, but all of your hit points were flooded into your attack bonus. All of your hit points were flooded into your AC and all of them were like into skills and you took damage against it. That's kind of the way Numenera works. And I, my, my, my wife, for example, I don't think she'll be mad if I bring this up. She's not a big fan of Cypher. And one of the reasons why is she's a relatively risk adverse player and she doesn't like to burn resources like that. So for her, like it's the game is just painful because it's like you're always going out to the shed to get the belt. No matter what you want to do, you're going to take a beating. Whether you're doing the beating to yourself or whether the monsters are doing a beating, you're, you're just taking a beating the whole time. That gets exasperated at high, at high levels, definitely. But then you're also like, when the characters hit these higher tiers, you kind of want to throw some higher level challenges. I think I probably overdid it. I think I... I threw too many high-level challenges at them, and I think I should have stayed down in the threes and fours and fives. The one issue for me is that if, you, if you're running like level three monsters, a lot of times people have armor that's so high that the monsters don't do any damage to you. So then it's like, well, then I don't have to defend because they don't even hit me. So you get these weird things where like if the monsters don't do damage because you have armor on, then they're basically useless to run. But then if you throw monsters that are big enough that they'll still do damage to you, they're so big, it's too hard. So it's a, that's where the math kind of works out. The simplicity feels really great. It just doesn't work out in play. I think if he got rid of armor as a, as a, as a, um, as a detriment, if like armor was an asset instead of a, instead of damage negation, I think that might've worked better, but what do I know? Everyone loves ciphers. They love, they, they brought them. They said that ciphers really made the game unique. It was the ciphers that made their characters do stuff that was different every time. They all love that. And it was the number one, probably my number one tip for D&D DMs is use cipher-like things in your D&D game. I've been using them. I love them. I talk about them all the time. Single-use magic items. Use the table in the player's handbook. They have that trinket table. Roll a trinket. Find a high-level spell, tie the high-level spell to the trinket, drop it into the character, and let them use it one time. Once they use it, the magic is done. Really, really easy, really powerful trick for D&D. I brought up the, the character's focus of the verb was great. They walk through walls, they ride through the lightning, really helped define the character. I think I had four characters that played Jax, and they love Jax because they said it's like the ultimate multi-class class, because you can take things from these other, you can take things from the glaive, or you can take things from the nano, but you're still this class in between. They really like, they really like Jax. I mentioned that they all really love the story, that that was the real strength. One player said that they are just spoiled by D&D Beyond. They love D&D Beyond and, and having to do it all by hand again. She said it was a chore. She's like, this, you know, I don't know what to say, but it's a chore. And I said, well, guess what? We're doing it again for our Scarlet Citadel game. We're doing back to paper character sheets. And she's like, I know. But, you know, not having an online tool, I think it really benefits. Here's a tip. If you're a big multi-million dollar RPG company, like, I don't know, Cobalt Press or Mac MCDM or Ghostfire Games, I would invest in an online tool to help people build characters using your options. I would really look at what D&D Beyond does, and I would try to figure out how to 
make online tools to help people use your resources. I'm telling you, because I just think people are going to buy these books and not be able to use them. And, and boy, D&D Beyond shows how valuable it is to make a tip. So I don't know how else to say it. And, 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 and I don't like saying it. It hurts me to say it. But the truth is a lot of players, these are not like, oh, they're all the millennials. These are all the young kids these days. No, I play with a bunch of Gen Xers and we all like D&D Beyond. All of us really like D&D Beyond. So consider, consider other sources, F figure out, you know, figure out how to help people use your, your tools online. After eight months of playing Numenera, the mechanics never felt as intuitive as 5e. That's a hard truth, but we are all very familiar with 5e. Now, all of us are like 5e DMs. I think everybody at my Sunday game are DMs. They all run games. And they're, we're all really proficient with 5th edition, I think. And, but even after eight months, we should be proficient in any role-playing game we played. We should really well understand the mechanics. And people are like, I still don't. I mentioned that all of us are ready to go back to 5e. This, I think, is a really, it's, again, it's a, hard, it's a hard lesson for because I love Numenera. I love it. I love the books. I'm still happy. I'm I feel great joy when I talk about the fact that I completed a Numenera campaign like this. Yet, all of us feel like we're ready to go back to 5e. And nobody said, I would be totally happy going right to another Numenera game. They all said, nah, I'd really like to take a break, do something else, and then come back. Maybe we'll do Numenera again later. But we've never said that with 5th edition. With 5th edition, we're like, sure, we'll play another 5th edition campaign. So I think that that's really interesting. I think it's a real, it shows the real strength of 5e, that we are, I could play 5e campaign after campaign after campaign and not get bored with it and, and not feel like I was losing hand, my hands on the system. I did not feel that way with Numenera. I had one player, again, somebody who's a very experienced GM, and she said that she loves the Cypher system itself and she would totally use it for other systems, that she really feels like it's a solid system for using with other ones, which is interesting because we were all talking about these different things about the math breaking down i think she really feels like for short run campaigns like you know one to four session campaigns cypher is a fantastic system for it i agree i also really like fate for systems like that i think fate is a really powerful system and doesn't have some of the eat your own arm to do things kind of qualities to it fate isn't near as crunchy though but that might work okay for for short run systems so we have a different one i, I like cypher a lot but i think i think i like fate better i think when i think about a system for one-shot games i think fate has some advantages that cypher doesn't have oh uh, another small small observation but one of the players had is that she her character had lots of ways to kind of set things up as an action like spend an action to do this thing and it was never worth doing because battles never took long enough that it was worth burning an entire action to do it it's like imagine taking the ready action to get advantage on your next hit and then the monster's dead so that that was an interesting observation she actually did so in the final battle and wasted an entire round of three rounds fighting a monster where the thing she did didn't take place and again it hurt my heart I, and that one i knew it when it happened i'm like all she wanted to do is punched the fourth emperor in the face and she rolled and missed and she only got one attack against it and then it was dead the, one of the things about having like a really big fantastic story is you don't have any specific metaphors the character brought him like if we're in a slaughterhouse i can generally i get an idea what a slaughterhouse is like but if i'm in like a multi-dimensional weird hive space that exists inside the data sphere i don't know what that's like i have no idea what's there so it's up to the dm and the players to kind of build what these things like because numenera is so high fantasy and there's no real metaphor to fall back on it's really up to the dm to fill the place out with physical things physical descriptions the characters can do stuff with and like build assets and build assets player one player brought up the fact that every time they were defending they felt like they were just standing there taking a hit which is interesting because you're like isn't that what happens when you get hit in in D? &D? the difference was 
they're rolling rolls. They just feel like it's punishment. They feel like when you are getting attacked, it's like, well, I can either burn a bunch of points to defend or I can just take the damage. And it was always like, either way, I'm screwed. And that having that constant, like, well, you, the, the, the least worst of two choices was, was, really a, was, was really a problem. Another, some other thoughts from the players. These are when we kind of brought up our final thoughts. They really felt like it's important. I, th- I talked about this a bit with the Theater of the Mind. One of the players who's very spatially oriented said it would really help to understand exactly how this operates in Theater of the Mind. He could have used more instruction on how that worked. I think that's been a, a frustration, I think, with him for some time because I run a lot of Theater of the Mind. It's like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing or what exactly how this works. If you're not happy with 5e, try other systems. This is, this is an observation from one of the players who's a, a GM and, and they brought up that like, you know, there's lots and lots and lots of different RPG systems out there. Try them. And Numenera, there's some good, inexpensive ways to try Numenera, to do it for short run events to see if you like it. Try Fate. Try Numenera. Try Shadow of the Demon Lord. Try 13th Age. Try these other systems. They're out there. Savage Worlds. All these other systems out there. Try them. See what works. Some of it really works. A lot of the, the Powered by the Apocalypse. Try Dungeon World. Try Blades in the Dark. Try all these systems and see which one you like. Particularly if you're not happy with something in 5th edition. If you're like, I really don't like 5th edition because of this stuff. Try a different system. Making sure that really people understand the mechanics. What are the, what is that relationship between the pools? That's something that somebody brought up and plan to keep it. This is a recommendation that one of my players have, but just keep it low level, right? Stay at, stay at low levels that the game fell apart at high levels. The most fun was building characters and seeing those characters in the world. So pick small adventures and focus on those small adventures. So that, that's, that's definitely some thoughts. Now I'm just going to give my final thoughts about, about this whole campaign. Again, I feel a tremendous satisfaction having run it. I thought the story was might be the biggest, most crazy fun story I've run in a role-playing game. And it does hurt me a little bit when I, and I, you know, the players certainly don't mean this way. I know they enjoyed it too, but to know that the mechanics really didn't keep up with the story bothers me because I would have really liked it that the game was as smooth and as fast and as fun. But by the time they were fighting a level 10 monster when they were tier five, I could tell the math was falling apart and that the game wasn't really, it, the way we were running it, maybe we weren't running it right. Maybe we didn't have a full grasp of it, but we had been playing for eight months. We're not exactly, and we're all GMs. Every one of us knows how to play RPGs. And when we couldn't get our hands around uh, around it to, to make it anything but kind of a, a slog. So I think like a more focused, short, low tier game might be a might be a better way to go. Like doing just tier one. Like if you did five, you know, four steps and then got to tier two, I think might be fun. But I was really, really grateful to have players willing to let me play and let me run a Numenera game for as long as I've, I've, I've run it. That's been, that's been really great. By the time I hit 25 sessions, my well of fantasy, of fantasy was beginning to run dry. I was, I remember when I was running like the, 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 the second, the last big dungeon they crawled through a place known as the shield below, which was this million year old underwater Numenera that blocked the data sphere from the ocean. And I was like, I don't know what the hell to put in here. How about crab people? I think they'll fight some crab people, maybe a big, a big worm. I think there was two places where they fought a big worm. And I was like, man, really? That's what I got? Big worms and crab people? And then I, but, but one of the things that helped fire it back up again, fire up my imagination. And, and this is kind of a tip is art. Look at the art in the book. They, they, one thing that, that Monty Cook Game does that's great is even though they built this very high fantasy, very abstract world where there's no frame of reference, the art really carries it. And just going back to that art, p- picking up, I, I just spent an afternoon and I picked up the three monster books and went through them and immediately like, oh, way better than a shark with a laser on his head is this guy. Way better than a crab person is this guy. You know, and then I had monsters and I could take the art and show it to the players and be like, this is what you're fighting. You're like, what the hell is that? So go back to art and then random tables. I'm a big, Monty Cook Games also puts a lot of effort in random tables. It's one of the things that got me so excited about random tables. And you can go back. I never had to worry about coming up with a cipher because I just used the Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle, not Arthur Conan Doyle, what is it? The, the Arthur C. Clarke book of, Numenera, of ciphers. 
And I would just roll ciphers over. There was 600 ciphers in that book. We never hit one again. I always came up with interesting ones. So random tables, art and random tables are a good way to, to fuel your engine for creativity. I've already mentioned this before, but it really, playing Numenera showed me how strong fifth edition is. That might drive some people bananas. It probably drives Monty Cook Games bananas. To, if, 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 sorry, if you work at Monty Cook Games, I apologize. I love your game. I love it. Thank you very much. 5e is also a really strong system and 5e also breaks down when you get to higher levels trust me you play a 17th level fifth edition game you can see how things can get really wonky and the math can certainly get weird there's something that's really solid about 5e and there's something about the way 5e operates and maybe it's just we're so used to it but i think the system is really really strong and the idea that you could play that system and just keep changing the scenario and changing the adventure and we can play for a year we've been playing eight years i've been pretty i've been playing basically two solid fifth edition games a week for eight years. I've played like a thousand sessions and I'm not bored. I'm totally ready. In fact, I'm watching the one D&D play test and I'm like, I don't know why they're changing this stuff. I've already, I'm fine. All the things are changing. They don't need to change. I don't need this stuff. I'm happy. I'm still happy. Just give me more scenarios. Give me more cool stuff. Give me more monsters. Give me more ideas. I really don't need that much. I definitely felt like I needed better guidance for how to run monsters in Numenera. They really hand wave and say, just pick the level of monster that makes sense. Don't, there is no monster balance. There's no encounter balance, but it's like, that's not helping me because I have no gauge to understand how powerful a tier three or tier four character is. And I have no idea, like, are these monsters too hard? I think I ended up running monsters that were way too hard for the characters because I was worried about their armor taken away. And I knew that like this guy I can never hit. So if I ever want to hit him, I'm going to have to put a monster in that's big enough to hit him. And that was crushing other people. So that's, that's definitely like better guidance for uh, what kind of monster makes sense at the different tiers of play, just generally. Like, I don't need much, and I, I get it. I get the idea that you pick monsters that make sense for the situation. I preach this all the time. That said, I still have the lazy encounter benchmark, which tells me roughly when are things getting hard? Like, where's the balance of hard and easy? Like, some gauge, just some rough gauge would have really helped me out. Another area was like, high-level monsters really need to have multiple attacks in order to be effective. If they only do one thing, it's not very much. They need to be able to hit multiple people. If they're not hitting multiple people, they're going to be too weak. So what, what's that balance like? And it says like, ah, if it makes sense for them to have multiple attacks, even multiple attacks. But if you're just randomly giving monsters multiple attacks, they're way more effective. There needs to be some guidance for that. Like here's how many attacks, generally speaking, a monster should have at a given level. At four, they should probably get two attacks. At five or six, they should get three. Seven, eight, nine, maybe four, or maybe they're doing things that hit everybody something to kind of balance out what these big monsters are like almost the equivalent of like legendary monsters you know when you're fighting a level 10 monster if it only hits one guy that's really weak because they're only going to be on the table for a long time but i learned that early and i never got a good solution to it i really wished i'd had the kind of conversation with my players that we did after the game during the game i know i talked about ciphers being a big tip but bigger than that tip bigger than the biggest tip is Talk to your players regularly in the middle of your campaigns and ask them how they're doing. Ask them how they're enjoying the game. Talk to them about what they like about their character. Talk about what's frustrating to them. Get that feedback and you can tune and change the game. If I had known that one of my players is like, I've missed like every roll for three weeks. I'd be like, wow, I really need to make that sure that they're having more fun because that sucks, right? She was having a good time, but missing on every attack really blows. Talk to your, talk to your players. I would totally play it again, but I, I would definitely play on a focus campaign of like one to four sessions, maybe up to eight sessions. I would probably stick it to like tier one and tier two. I don't think I would bother going all the way up like I did. So somebody brought up that I have often stated that in an alternate universe, I'm probably playing a lot of Numenera. 
I don't think I feel like that anymore. I think Numenera works really well for short campaigns, but I don't know. Having now run a long campaign, I don't know the next time I will have a drive to run another great big long campaign. Some of it's the math of the system. Some of it is that I like the fatigue of having to come up with that much stuff, that much imagination every week. It can drag on. So the one thing that D&D has going for it is 40 years of experience, 40 years of knowing what an ogre acts like 40 years of knowing what rats in a cellar are like or what the dimension of thanatos is like where orcus is sitting i i have all of this fantasy and all the rest of my life that i can draw in numenera i really need to make that stuff up and that can get fatiguing so i don't think i feel like i would be able to go to numenera and just run it indefinitely i had a good time with it i would definitely play it again i don't think it would be my number one system to play and the reality is i'm ready to go back to DD. i'm ready to go back we're, we're going to run our scarlet citadel game i'm very excited for my scarlet citadel game we had our session zero it was wonderful beautiful characters really interesting stuff i'm getting ready and, and i'm excited for that so those are my final thoughts on numenera i for those of you who have watched all of my prep episodes on this thank you so much for hanging out for if you're just watching this ep episode and you want to know more i have a whole bunch of videos about numenera where i've been prepping all my games you can hear about the story you can hear about my experiences i have another video where i also shared more experiences from my game so lots of stuff about numenera on this channel you can find it all in the playlist there's a numenera playlist that i have on my channel and you can view all the videos that i have about numenera Thanks to all of you for hanging out with me today. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You will get a weekly D&D related article sent directly to your inbox every week, and you will get a free PDF adventure generator to help shake up that well of your imagination. You can support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of tools, tips, tricks, adventures, city source books, dedicated channels where you can hang out and talk about D&D. Uh, monthly Q&A, all kinds of great stuff. So joining the Patreon of Slight Flourish, fantastic way to get more of the stuff that I create and to help support shows like this. You can also pick up my three books, The Lazy Dungeon Master, uh, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. I don't even know the names of my books. Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy Dams Workbook, and The Lazy Dams Companion. All books to help you run your games. They are all in a beautiful offset printing. You can pick them up at the Sly Flourish store. That link is down in the show notes below. And you can share this video with your friends, subscribe to my channel, like the video, leave a comment, tell people you dig it, send it to your friends, and help get the word out about the work that I do. Thank you all so much. Have a great day, and get out there and play some Numenera. <laughs>